Hey folks, thanks for joining me for this episode of the Embellish Podcast, a podcast focused on product stories, product storytellers, interesting brand ambassadors, and any other tangent that I happen to come up with. Whether you're a bourbon fan, a geek, a casual observer, or someone just floating through this channel, I hope you find it interesting. If you got here by chance, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button. Hopefully that can be found on any podcasting platform that exists. And if you can't find me on a platform, you can send me an email at embellishpod at gmail.com and I'll try to get that taken care of. I also generally live stream the recording of these episodes on YouTube on Wednesday nights around 9.30 p.m. Central Standard Time. You can find all of my links on Instagram at embellishpod or Twitter with the same handle. I also have a website. It is www.embellishpod.com. It's a place to pick up the links for these things, episode details, and more. Today is June the 22nd, and we're going to be talking about Founding Fathers Whiskeys. And I started planning the idea for this particular episode um, once we knew we were going on vacation. Uh, originally, we had planned on doing the great family trip out west. I've got a, I usually have a pour before I start the, the episode, <laughs> the show or whatever, and I'm on my third try of this OKI Reserve, and the first two, you know, I, I think if you know anything about whiskey, you've probably seen this floating around. First two times I tried this, I was incredibly disappointed with it. it has a fantastic nose. This is the the bottle we're talking about. Well, white balance is never going to let you see any of that, so it doesn't matter. Um, nose is fantastic, and the taste was underwhelming. But I just drank it a few minutes ago, and I don't know if it needed some time or I needed some time. Maybe I don't know. That's my rule of three. We got to try it three times before we decide we don't like a thing. And I'm gonna keep going on this one just to make sure. But uh, several months ago, we were planning on doing like this, you know, fantastic out west trip and go see Mount Rushmore and you know all of the Badlands and nature and all of those fun things um but some you know conflicts came up my my daughter went to young authors camp a host of other things were occurring and we ended up having a shorter amount of time to go on vacation so we decided to pivot and go to washington dc and i knew that part of our trip were we were going to be visiting monticello and mount vernon and washington dc and a host of other things and i knew that you know there's this big history that is behind um founding fathers and whiskey and i was like yeah it's a perfect time for for me to talk about that it just so happens that it coincided with when i got back on monday we were doing a tasting club with the guys over at bourbon lens it's a podcast that i patreon if you don't you probably should um there's a host of them on here um but they were doing a tasting with a particular distiller that we're going to talk about today just it was all coincidental and so i saved a little bit of both of the samples that they had provided as a part of the tasting club um had a chance to listen to the proprietor speak about what he's doing um so it really kind of helped fill out this particular episode but the uh the other side of that being like i said um chance to talk about stuff you know history whiskey i'm not going to say the word bourbon because that's largely not what we're going to talk about. There's only one bourbon out of the three that we're going to take a, talk about here. Um, before we get started, one of the other things I want to call out, uh, another podcast that I follow, Whiskey to My Wedding Ring, David over there, uh, Patreon him as well. Uh, he is running um, some Advent calendars, and um, it's a weird time of the year to be doing Advent. Uh, poor guy can't help it. He's from New York. He doesn't know any better. Um, but he's making available some opportunity to participate in an Advent calendar. Hop over, uh, join his uh, Facebook group, reach out to him, do whatever you need to to participate in this because these are going to obviously be fantastic. Um, he, he's He's got a great podcast. He's got s some great uh, palate and tasting notes and all kinds of wonderful things. 
It just needed a little bit of time, or maybe I did. Can't tell which one. Um, another thing, I'm in the middle of what could be considered, I guess, a um, rebrand. Uh, ever since uh, Whiskey Weekend, I've kind of had this idea. You know, they were talking about this idea of Whiskey Church, and I, I really kind of stuck on that. And I thought, you know what, I, I would like to have my logo designed as stained glass. And so I passed it off to my incredibly talented wife and I was like, Hey, um, can you make this happen? And so she learned an entirely new digital art concept. And that afternoon provided me with some stuff. So you may see some of the branding on the website and on the social media accounts change a little bit. I mean, it's, it's all, you know, kind of lipstick on the pig here, so to speak, but it's a, you know, it's something that I'm wanting to do. Uh, something that I think, uh, looks better. Uh, maybe we'll, put it on a t-shirt or a glass or something, I can give it to somebody. Um, I don't know. I'm trying to think if I've got any other pre-show note discussion things that I want to cover here. Um, probably not. Probably not. Probably not. <clears throat> so we'll get on with it. So the, we're going to talk about um, three specific founding fathers through the course of tonight's episode um, and how they may or may not be related to particular brands that exist today, how they played a role in the history of whiskey in the United States, a whole host of stuff. So I'm going to start with uh, George Washington. No, I don't think anybody should be surprised by that. Um, George Washington was a distiller to a large degree. One of the things that, that we were able to learn while we were visiting Mount Vernon, uh, seeing all the things, we didn't get an opportunity to visit the distillery itself um, because it wasn't running the day we were there. But we did get an opportunity to you know do a host of different things. But he was a distiller as a part of his particular farming operation. Um, but to kind of see his impact on whiskey, we can look at him uh, from a political perspective as opposed to a commerce perspective. In the late 1790s, uh, well, in the, in the 1790s, George Washington um, approved an excise tax on liquor. Um, and what they were attempting to do is um, he was listening to Alexander Hamilton, who's going to be the next person that we're going to talk about through the course of this um, they they had accrued a lot of debts fighting the Revolutionary War, the, the war that creates the country that exists. And we're talking specifically around 1791, so an excise tax on liquor that that is created before Kentucky even becomes a state. Kentucky doesn't become a state until 1792. Um, but Alexander Hamilton is pushing for this excise tax on liquor. Uh, you got to think there wasn't taxes on many things at that point in time, and they needed to repay some debts. So he Hamilton persuades Congress, persuades uh, Washington, persuades the political ecosystem as a whole to be able to introduce tariffs on imported goods, tax spirits, and um, chartering what becomes the the Bank of the United States. Whole host of things that sort of happen here. The you know the national debt at that point in time is estimated to be in the tens of millions of dollars, and as soon as uh, they realize the need to resolve this. 
Yeah, absolutely no luck on bingo last last Saturday. Got close on a couple of them. Think uh, the fun directors here. So if you follow him on social media, if you don't, you should go follow him on social media. Um, that was a, that was another thing I probably should have mentioned. Uh, Chris uh, Blattner from Urban Bourbonists and also from Bourbon Charity, um, and John from Dad's Drinking Bourbon ran a um, bingo charity uh, Saturday night. It was a Father's Day sort of Father's Day type of event, um, but they were able to raise some money for some charitable things and give away some bottles. I've done it the last few years. It's a super fun event. Uh, never win anything, but, you know, hey, I'm, I'm going to waste money on something. Might as well make sure it's something that is uh, charitable, and I have a chance of winning something. So um, kind of running back to this, we're, we're at the point of we're trying to resolve a significant national debt. Um, that we kind of created by deciding to become our own country. I guess maybe one of the most unique things to think is that at the at the time that we're founding this nation, we're also trying to figure out how to pay off a huge national debt. I don't know. Maybe there's a maybe there's a there's a story that exists there. Um, the rates for the taxation were based on alcohol strength. Um, where they were made from, you know, like there was a, there was a, there was a, a series of, of calculations that were made here, um, that were intending to tax the creation and the sale of alcohol, something that kind of continues through today with the intent of funding the federal government's, um, needs. And then we fast forward a little bit. Um, we jump to Thomas Jefferson, who is the third brand that we want to talk to. We got Jefferson's, we've got uh, Fort Hamilton, and we've got um, some stuff from George Washington's distillery specifically that we're going to talk through. But um, Thomas Jefferson repealed these excise taxes that had created this whole whiskey rebellion. And I'm not going to go into the depths of, no, don't worry, man. That's what uh, I appreciate you being here. Interrupt anytime you want. I'm giving some boring history, and then we'll move on to whiskey at some point. Um, but there's this whole whiskey rebellion that occurs. Washington has to put down this rebellion. Um, and there's historians that think one way or the other. I'll let you do some research on the whiskey rebellion yourself if you want to. Some historians believe that they were actually trying to put down the uh, whiskey rebellion. Some people were trying to um, see if Washington, Washington was trying to see if he, could, if he could still muster a militia in a time of need um, post-revolutionary war. Um, what was the level of command that he had over the army at that point in time? I don't know. I'll let historians kind of hash that out. Um, but when we think about these three men, you know, if you've seen Hamilton, the play, the musical, whatever you want to call it, um, you've learned about three of these characters and, and largely it's historically accurate and it's a, a fantastic, uh, production, but, of these three people, to, uh, legitimately, Washington was the least educated of the three, and it was something that, while we were touring his home, they, they kind of made it a point to really um, indicate his um, his conscientiousness to his lack of education. So when you pit him against uh, a mind like Alexander Hamilton or against Thomas Jefferson right now, we don't think anything of it, but the, th the other two were very well classically trained and very, very... Uh, intelligent men. Obviously, he was as well, but it was kind of something that he carried forward. So, we'll get into the actual whiskey distilleries itself. We've talked about, I just, I don't know, this, this OKI Reserve. Uh, 
I didn't like it. I didn't like it. Now I do like it. We'll have to give it a fourth try now. You know, I, I, that, that's that, that's perplexing. So, um, the the first distillery brand brand that we want to talk about is Jefferson's Bourbon. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, um, that was one of our tour stops. Thomas Jefferson, um, his home is um, Monticello. It's a beautiful home. Uh, it's not what, if I were to think about a colonial era mansion, it's not what I would imagine it to be. Um, there's a lot of unique characteristics about him as a president, as a human being, as a father, as a statesman, as all of these other things. Um, he created his whole living environment to revolve around the idea of separating himself from the number of public visitors that he had on a regular basis. He had tons and tons of visitors that would um, climb to the top of Monticello, uh, which is a, a little mountain, so to speak. Um, you know, if, if you know anything about Italian language, you might get that. But it's he he had a separate way for for visitors to enter had a separate place for them to be had a, had a was known for kind of keeping people at uh, a distance and in his time he was not a distiller he he wasn't necessarily even really interested in whiskey at all he was much more enamored with imported wines and um He actually advocated for reducing taxes on products um, with the intent of thinking that who would drink whiskey if wine were cheap enough, right? So he wanted to get everything uh, cheap enough to where people would continue to drink wine. That was his preference. And so if you're trying to create a brand based off of a historical story and a tie-in to a president, uh, Jefferson's probably not the one that you want to do that with, but... That's not at all what Jefferson Bourbon tries to do. They don't try to tie into anything other than his name and his image. You know, there's, there's, uh, I have this, this, this older bottle. I just spilled it all over my lap. That's cold. Um, I have this older bottle of a, of a selection that was done by a local retailer here. And, uh, They have his image, they have his name on it, but whenever you look into the brand, you know, it's it's only been around since the the mid to late 90s. Um, it was created by a bourbon historian. It has a different parent company that owns it. Um, they're an eighth generation moonshining family. Um, they've been producing this. They didn't have anything of a legitimate marketing budget. So they wanted to find a name that they could tie themselves that has a history and a tradition affiliated with it. And so they, they, they use Jefferson as kind of their marketing interest. Hold on, I'm going to try to get a kid to come up here with a towel. So it was purely marketing. They'll, they'll, they'll readily admit it. They're not trying to tie in to any sort of um, presidential or historical implication. They just wanted something that had name recognition. And Thomas Jefferson's it. I mean, I guess if you were trying to look for a statesman from the state of Kentucky is Thomas Jefferson, who is a Virginian, the right one. Now, 
maybe because Kentucky was originally a part of Virginia up until 1792. It was a thing that um, that that existed, and so you know we could consider that. But he did not live anywhere near the geographies of Kentucky. You know, he he lived in and around where his home was. So you know, is there a different uh, politician that you could potentially use? Yeah, you could use Lincoln. That would be an easy one to use because he's from this state, um, has some actual historical ties. Um, there's a host of other people that you could go after, but you know that's who they chose. But they didn't try to create some some other story that goes along with it. And so they build this brand, and then they you know kind of push out into Jefferson's um, presidential select. It was Jefferson's Reserve to start with, Jefferson's Presidential Select, and then Jefferson's Small Batch, which is what this is. This is a Jefferson's Small Batch um, specialty bottling. And I bought this a long time ago, and I haven't really drank much of it. It's really, really light-colored. Um, but I'm going to you know, kind of keep tasting it after I've cleaned up this mess that I dropped in my own lap. It was fantastic. Um I don't remember if this is a single barrel or if this is just a, a batch selection. I, I don't know how they work these, but, you know, there's nothing incredibly offensive about it. So you've got the Trezoler. I think that's how you pronounce it. They found a company called McCain, and Kine, and they decide this is our brand now. We're going to name it after a guy who... Didn't really have any interest in whiskey whatsoever. They just wanted to tie their name into some some degree of recognition. And so kind of moving forward um, and tying into the discussion that I had with um, the folks over at Bourbon Lens uh, on Monday night, we have uh, Fort Hamilton. And Fort Hamilton is has its namesake. You know, it's currently based in Brooklyn. And it... They're, they're, they're carrying out this story of they're surrounded by the landmarks of the Revolutionary War, which is true. You know, when you look in the the Pacific Northeast and the colonial states, that's exactly where the Revolutionary War was fought. And um, they wanted to find something to kind of attach to their name that gave them some historicity and some connection. And so they reached into and grabbed a hold of uh, Fort Hamilton and Fort Hamilton has a namesake. We'll kind of get through that, but their goal is to try to um, celebrate America's original whiskey style, which is New York rye. And that's where I enjoy what they're doing, right? They're, they're attaching themselves to a person who didn't necessarily have any attachment to uh, whiskey specifically. Um, likely, you know, if you think about Hamilton, he was probably more of a rum drinker given his uh, background and the times because rum were rum was huge at that point in time. Um, but New York rye was a thing, and that's what they're trying to make. They're they're trying to kind of reclaim this. Um, they use no corn in any of their mash bills, and then they don't do any of the other stuff that might have happened uh, historically. Um, the Fort Hamilton rye whiskey is just malted barley and rye grain. And I think I might marked it down. It's a 90-10 mix. So yeah, it's 90, 90% um, rye, 10% malted barley. And this is, this one that I have is actually um, a private barrel. They, they gave us both a 
um, double barrel rye and um, their uh, private barrel. And the double barrel rye was a blend of their uh, of New York distillate and 95.5 MGP. Um, so you know they're they're being to to some degree transparent on what they're doing, but it was um, the the double barreled it had a green note to it and not in a bad way. Like it was just something that was green. <clears throat> it reminded me I was helping my in-laws clear off some land that had been overgrown and we were basically just cutting down um, tall grasses and whatnot. And sometimes when you get out into a field, you start cutting through stuff and you'll hit a patch of something that was just weird and random, weird and random weed. And maybe it's in the mint family, maybe it's in a, a sorrel family, whatever. It had this unique, and it, it's not a mint smell, but it's a green smell that kind of lives in that mint family. And that's definitely in this 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 rye that's over here. But um, <clears throat> they go into the barrel at low proof. They use smaller barrels and they age it all themselves they do all of these things they're 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 actually heating their um warehouses in the wintertime you know which doesn't happen can happen in kentucky because our winters are mild enough that it's not necessarily a thing that we have to do but in new york it gets cold enough where your aging process virtually stops at that point in time um so they're they're finding ways to mitigate that by heating it uh, a little bit to allow for some movement to still occur in those cold winter months. But they're uh, naming themselves, like I said, after Alexander Hamilton um, and the Hearts of Oak Militia. It, it's it's all a, a connection back into Revolutionary War concepts, but once again, not a connection to the actual founding father other than in namesake alone. Um, but they're tying in to let's be New York and New Yorkians, New Yorkans, I, whatever. Um, New Yorkites. I don't know. What, what would that be? <clears throat> um, but they're sticking with this New York rye. They're, they're making, you know, a couple of different types of rye, um, trying to make some, some interesting spirits and not using any corn to try to additionally sweeten it. So that puts us through two people who have absolutely no connection historically to distilling to distilling, and brings us to George Washington. And we, we talked about this a little bit uh, early on, but <clears throat> George Washington had a distillery at Mount Vernon. Uh, it is, it, in its heyday, it was producing nearly 11,000 gallons of whiskey, which is possibly the largest if not one of the largest distilleries in the country at that point in time and it is still larger than many distilleries today it had five copper spot copper pots going at the same time um george washington made mostly rye of course his his rye was going to be unaged um or at least not aged in the sense that we know you know they're going to distill it they're going to put it in a barrel and then it's going to go for sale somewhere so the barrel aging it gets is either in transit or as it sits in a um, bar somewhere being poured directly out of which is a possibility but <clears throat> he made it with a 60 percent rye 30 percent corn and five percent barley and this was an opportunity for him to capitalize on unused grain on his um plantation we won't call it anything besides a plantation because it's exactly what it was 
He had slave labor that helped him with the production of a number of things like many of the founding fathers did. That was a, a practice that was acceptable at the time. And it was a thing that he did, you know, like there's, there's a good portion of, and that was one of the things that if, if you travel, um, visiting Mount Vernon and Monticello, they have very good education programs on, um, slavery. I remember visiting plantations whenever I was a kid and they would try to soft play what happened on plantations, but that's not really the case anymore. It's pretty straightforward and it's very educational. It's very truthful on what's happening, but I won't go too far down that path. But this, this particular whiskey that we're going to talk about is actually being distilled on the site of, um, Mount Vernon now. Um, There was a distillery project that began 20-ish years ago. Um, Mount Vernon hires Dave Pickerel, which, you know, everybody who's watching this will know who Dave Pickerel is. And they bring him in to help them build this distillery. Now, they're not trying to build a modern distillery. They're trying to recreate a historical distillery. um, And they're trying to do it in entirely in period fashion. So it takes them several years to achieve this. Um, they use authentic tools, materials, reconstruct everything to be similar to the 18th century because that's exactly what's happening. I mean, it, it, Mount Vernon is in the middle of more restoration to create, to make sure it is period specific. It's not some um, modernized version of what that home was. It's exactly what it was at that point in time. And so the distillery needed to match it. And so they put in what is needed. You know, there's no screws or sheetrock or whatever. The only modern touches that you'll find will be the things that are mandated, like fire alarms, lighting, whatever. Um, but the distillery runs primitively. It doesn't have running water. Um, the stills are filled by bucket, emptied by bucket. Um, that's sort of the intent and they don't run often. So what comes out of the distillery is incredibly, incredibly expensive and everything's done by sight and sound and taste and smell because there's no gauges, there's no modernized distillation, whatever. Um, and so they bring in some folks from Scotland that maybe have a little bit more understanding on how those work and, um, they work their way through it. Now the mash bill itself, the mash bill is, is, is one of those interesting things that, um, they, we don't have George Washington's mash bill specifically, but what we do have is we have access to distillery ledgers from the time that he was operating. And so they were able to recreate the mash bill based off of grain quantity purchases, a host of other things. And, you know, in, in George Washington's tradition, they distilled twice and then they sent it out to market as common whiskey, which is going to be white. Now, that's the, the historical story of it. And then there's the today story of it, right? And so in the gift shop to Mount Vernon, you have the opportunity to purchase a George Washington straight rye whiskey. They have this one and then they have a select version. Maybe it's an estate. I can't remember what they called it. But a 375 ml bottle of whiskey that is made on site runs like 200 and some odd dollars dollars. So we're looking at the, the fiscal equi- physical equivalent of a $400 bottle of whiskey. 
And I personally cannot justify that. I'm like, eh, that's not what it is. But what they do sell is they sell these wonderful little 50 ml bottles. And these things are like 25 bucks a piece. I said, you know, I'm about to because I want to try one while we're gone. Uh, you know, we're, we're staying in hotels, don't have access to anything. And then I have one to, to come back to and, and talk about here. And so we sit down in the hotel two nights after we visited Mount Vernon, maybe. Um, you know, I pour it into a glass. I got a George Washington Glen Cairn as well. You know, something to kind of keep around because if you're a whiskey person, you have 4,000 Glen Cairns. It just is what it is. And. I poured it out. You know, I know it's a rye whiskey. I know it's a small batch. I know it's, and when I mean small batch, it's a small, small batch. And I know that they're, you know, doing very traditional things. And so my expectations aren't very high. Hey, Tim, thanks for showing up. And it was maddeningly good. I don't, I don't think it's $400 a bottle good, but I understand why it is that way. You know, the, the, the work and the effort that goes into it, like I said, they're doing everything. They're putting all the water into the pot still by hand in buckets, and they're taking all of the distillate out by hand in buckets. Um, there's a very manual process. They're not doing this on a regular basis. They're, you know, they're, there's a lot of overhead that goes into it, and it is a souvenir. It is not for, you know, folks like you and me to have just bottles on bottles of this sitting around, um, uh oh, froze on you. Well, hopefully it, it hopefully it got going because I'm looking over at my stream from YouTube Studio and it looks like it's still going. So if it is, it is. If it isn't, we'll resolve it some other time. Um, but if this were a hundred dollars for three hundred seventy-five ml, I would probably go buy it. That's how I felt the night that we tried it. And this is me just first popping and taking a very little bit out of this little 50 ml bottle. And I still feel the exact same way. This historically accurately recreated distillate from George Washington's distillery is fantastic. I, I, I was thoroughly surprised by it. I mean, I guess I probably shouldn't be too surprised. I mean, there's a lot of corn content here, so it's going to have a good sweetness to it. There's enough rye. There's some malted barley. But there's still something else about this. And maybe it's, you know, me kind of conflating things because of the historicity of it or because of my own personal attachment to the moment or whatever. But even today, this is still really, really, really good. And so if you're traveling through D.C., you get an opportunity to stop in, buy yourself a 50 ml bottle of it at least. Or two, and, and I'll pay you back. And that was the other thing I thought is like maybe it makes more sense for them to price it at three hundred, you know, four hundred dollars for a full size bottle because they'll sell a ton more of these at twenty five dollars a pop. And I think the math works out to where they're going to make far more selling the twenty the fifty mls than they will by selling the 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 larger bottles. I don't know. Maybe it's more palatable. Maybe it's maybe it's any number of things, but. So that's kind of wrapping up the uh, Founding Fathers in Whiskey. Um, it'll be a short episode tonight. Looking forward to a few things that we've got planned. I'm trying to work on getting um, some folks in to talk about American Single Malt. Uh, we'll have Penelope coming up very soon, uh, working with um, someone from Maker's Mark to try to come on an episode and, and chit-chat. Trying to have more 
folks come on and join me because I think the interview conversation episodes are far more interesting than just listening to me drone on for um, 30 minutes and realistically having someone to, to bounce off of while I'm talking is, is far easier anyways. And so I appreciate you guys for hopping on tonight. Uh, Cliff and Tim, thank you for being here. Um, anybody else who happens to be here, but I don't see, I see there were at one, there might be more viewers than just that. Um, I don't know. Can I see? Can I see? Nope. I only see Tim right now. Um, but thanks for tuning in for this offering of the Embellished Podcast. If you enjoyed this, please leave me a review on whatever platform that you're consuming this on and leave a comment if possible. Hit me up on social media at Twitter or Instagram using EmbellishPod and give me a follow so you can keep up with what's going on here. I can be found... Yes, get Tim on as... Absolutely, I'll bring Tim on as a guest. That is a good call, Cliff, and maybe you. We'll, I'll just throw out the stream yard one night and we can just chit-chat. Um, I don't even know where I ended there, but I can be found at embellishpod.com with all of my links, account, contact details, and so forth. I'll be back again next week with another new offering for you. So until then, cheers, and thanks for hanging out.